0: the power of their data. was Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.
1: I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. When we started this series back in 2017, we welcomed nearly every general manager throughout the game. The interviews began as a featured part of the MLB Newsmakers podcast feed. There was so much interest in the interviews, we ended up launching the Executive Access podcast on its own feed in the spring of 2018. Last week, we began releasing a series of throwback episodes from the first season in 2017, beginning with Nationals General Manager, Mike Rizzo. This week, Executive Access features a trio of executives linked together. Blue Jays President and CEO, Mark Shapiro, Toronto General Manager, Ross Atkins, and Indians General Manager, Mike Chernoff. Both Atkins and Chernoff are part of the Shapiro tree, which includes Chris Antonetti, Mike Hazen, Derek Falvey, Ben Charrington, and David Stearns, among other executives around the game. All three talked about the benefits of a collaborative culture, what it's like to deal with former colleagues when they're on the other side of the table, and much more. As we wait for baseball to return, I hope you enjoy these 2017 conversations with Mark Shapiro, Ross Atkins, and Mike Chernoff. How did you get your first job in baseball?
2: Oh, my first job in baseball, well, um, you know, A lot of people know my dad. You know, back in the you know the '80s, was an agent. You know, he kind of happened into that by helping Brooks Robinson out of bankruptcy. And I was working for my first job out of college in Southern California for a big real estate developer. And I just flew out to. Phoenix just to spend a couple days with my dad as he toured camps and saw his players and from that time I met with, you know, Joe McIlvain, Jim Beatty, you know, these guys were executives and John Hart and Dan O'Dowd and you know, I was unhappy at my first job which is not unusual and uh, of course, like every 22-year-old kid, I was like, I want to work in baseball. My dad said, You don't want to be an agent, <laughs> um, and, uh, and and didn't even open that avenue to me. Um, and so I wrote 26. There weren't 30. There, you know, there were 26 teams. I wrote 26, you know, resumes and cover letters and sent them out. Didn't hear back from many. Um, Joe McElveen was great. Spent time with him. He was with the Padres back then. Um, and about. <clears throat> 8 months after I sent the letters I got a call from Dan O'Dowd you know who was the assistant GM with the Indians and the Indians were the worst team in all of baseball I think they lost 104 games in 1991 and It was a generic entry-level job with no title, just assistant baseball ops at a pay cut in Cleveland, which was not exactly a, you know, the movie Major League was pretty much all anyone knew it for. (laughs) And uh, and I couldn't wait, you know, especially especially I think more about John Hart and Dan O'Dowd and their vision for the organization with the new stadium coming two years down the line. And um, they were just people that I wanted to work for and work with. Um, and, uh, and so I, you know, I drove a U-Haul truck into, into Cleveland in, in January of 1992 and, and took that job on a, a really buying into people more than anything else.
1: Um, you mentioned your dad was an agent. You grew up in Baltimore. I, I see did. You Orioles fan? Oh, off the hook. Yeah.
2: I mean, those, those were the, you know, baseball was just part of the fabric of my relationship with my dad and my childhood. And, you know, we had season tickets to Oriole games in Memorial Stadium and, you know, it was, uh, you know, the love of the game from just being fans until I was, you know, because for the first 13 years of my life, we were just fans. That's all my dad was, just a guy that loved baseball and was, a, you know, a passion for him that he passed on to me. So, wiffle ball, stick ball, you know, baseball, it didn't matter. We were either going to games or playing. And uh, and then all of a sudden at 13, the same guys I was hanging over the rail trying to get autographs started coming into our house. So, Ed, <laughs> you know, Eddie Murray and Jim Palmer and Rick Dempsey and Mark Belanger and, You know, all these guys are, Calrokin Jr., all these guys are in our house, you know, having dinner with us. And so um, that was kind of weird and kind of bizarre. But it it always has been for me part of the perspective I've tried to carry into, you know, running a front office and being around players, which is, you know, our job aligns with trying to help players be the best they can be 99% of the time. There's only 1% of the time we work against them, and that's contract time. The rest of the time we all benefit. And so the more... We can genuinely and authentically communicate to a player that we care about them, that we're pulling for them, that we're here to help them to find the best resources, to help put them in a position to be successful. You know, If your relationship can always get back to that and be defined by that, you've got a chance to build an organization players want to play in um, and I think get the best out of players too.
1: You mentioned John Hart, you mentioned Dan O'Dowd. I assume those are two of the bigger influences early in your career. What did you learn most working under them? Yeah,
2: that's that's easy. You know, for John, uh, empowerment. You know, for me to have been a 25-year-old guy that they turned the player development system over to as a farm director and for John to tell me, you know, for me to walk into John's office at 25 years old and say, hey, I want to develop an individual player plan system for every player and want to think about developing players holistically, mentally, physically, and fundamentally, and, you know, I'm going to do it respectfully. I'm going to earn respect. But And for John to just say, hey, you're a guy. I got your back. I believe in you, you know, and for him to empower me at the level he did. I didn't fully appreciate it at that age. You know, now I look back at the young guys in our office and think, holy cow, you know, how much he believed in me. The power of that belief um, is immeasurable. And so I've tried to pay that forward, um, you know, that level of empowerment, that level of belief and understand what that can mean from John.
1: It's almost like you're reading my questions in advance. On the pay-it-forward front, I did these podcasts with all 30 GMs during spring training. I feel like I asked maybe a third of them what they learned working under you. You've got a a very impressive uh, tree, so to speak, of guys who are uh, major executives around the game, from Chris Antonetti, Mike Chernoff, Ross Atkins, obviously, um, Derek Falvey, Mike Hazen, Neil Huntington, David Stearns. It's a pretty impressive list, and that doesn't even include recent GMs like Ben Charrington um, and... uh, and josh burns what's it like for you to see all of these guys who worked under you who were that young up-and-coming guy go on to these kinds of, of levels
2: i mean i i you know listen it's we're all in this to win a world series but i kind of believe more that the process leads to the result um and so i've always viewed making it a great place to work and in investing in developing people and helping them to be the best they can be and helping them realize their goals and and get their dreams to be part of the job and so I guess what I'd say is I get a tremendous maybe the most fulfillment um professionally out of seeing those people do great things and achieve great things and I you know, I celebrate. You know, with them when they celebrate. You know, I bleed with them when they bleed. Um, when we play them, I still want to beat them. You know, it's just like a little brother you play. That's how I felt when we played Cleveland last year. You know, and, um, in the playoffs. But you know, I you know, I love those guys and I care about them and I'm pulling for them. And um, you know, in some ways, <clears throat> you know, I played some role, small role, you know, in them. You know, getting the opportunities they've got, they may they played just as big, if not a bigger role, in helping me grow. Because a big part of that, Mark, is those guys challenging us to continue to learn and grow. And I think grow, you know, a learning environment, a learning culture comes from getting really bright and talented people in, and then you know, turning them loose, empowering them to help make us better, and creating that understanding that that's that's what we're about. Whether it be the intern directors you know or the gm we want to create an environment where everybody's you know looking to get the decisions right and get them and grow and get better as an organization all the time so those guys while i was around them challenged me you know and helped me grow and learn to stay relevant because it's now been over 25 years so i've got to stay relevant you know
1: you you mentioned that alcs against the indians last year i know a lot of people asked you at the time what your emotions going into the series against your old team having had you know 10 months or so to reflect on that and yeah. look back on it. What was that experience like of, of going into an ALCS against a team that you were largely responsible for yeah.
2: helping build? it was uh it was a little surreal, a little bizarre, you know it when we were playing the games, it wasn't mixed at all, like I wanted to beat those guys, sure. just like I think you know Serena Williams feels when she plays Venus Williams, there like, <laughs> right. was no like you know there is no gray there, you know, like you're a competitive person, you're in this to win, you know I wasn't feeling charitable towards people I care about and like however you know i had 24 years invested in that organization from top to bottom the people so the second it was over you know after i had a moment to kind of grieve my focus turned to pulling for those guys and really wanting them to finish that and like feeling a part of it and whether it be most of those players i had a small piece or role in kind of bring developing either drafting or you know helping to trade for or being a part of whether it be you know chris mike You know, all people, the Carter Hawkins people up and down the organization that, you know, I can remember coming in and and learning and growing, or the player development system in general. Um, It just, it's not that easy just to detach. I mean, it's going to take years for me to not feel a part of the Indian organization. that's a good thing, I think. That's not a bad thing. So the other places, I'm just a part of the person. The Indians, I'm a part of the organization. And that doesn't, you know, that's 24 years invested in that. That'll that'll take a long time to probably not be as meaningful to me.
1: If my math is right, when you left Cleveland, you had spent half of your life there.
2: That's Yeah, I spent just about half my life there. It's true, yeah. So
1: knowing that city, knowing yeah. what it's, you know, sort of the, the evolution of that downtown area and just the fan base, what do you think it meant? For them, when the Cavaliers won a championship there, yeah. and in turn to then see the Indians in the World Series uh, again so soon after yeah. that, and just sort of that that rebirth of sports in Cleveland.
2: I think it, it's a it's a Cleveland is a great example of the power of sport and what sport can do to maybe disproportionately and maybe it's a little bit out of whack and not necessarily a great statement about our culture, but sports has the power to lift psyche and lift spirit and. Um, Cleveland because it is a smaller city and it's one of these cities that kind of has a, you know, a little bit of like if you're from there. And my kids, believe me, man, they bleed. They're two one six. They wear it on their shirts and they. You know, they, they still feel like they're going to be Cleveland kids their whole lives. So I'm sure you know, the
1: Kyrie trade is a popular topic amongst your family. My
2: son, for sure. Just my son. <laughs> you know, like so, I mean, they're you know that's that's something that's never going to go away. You know, so um, I think there's like a pride like that. Other people don't give us the respect or recognize the positive things about Cleveland, so um, that makes people that are there even more close knit. And so, being able to have uh, success at the highest level. And the biggest stage forces the outside world to look at them in a more positive light and so there's pride it's just a it's a point of pride incredible point of pride
1: you mentioned you, you started with the Indians as a baseball operations assistant in the early 90s you moved up through the ranks you, farm director you were in the Latin American operations you're the vice president of baseball operations a lot of job titles yeah was GM always the ultimate goal for you
2: great question I I never this is the honest answer I never felt like I had to achieve certain level or a certain job, you know, to be successful or have arrived or have doing something. I, I felt that leading was extremely important to me, that I enjoy leading people. I enjoy helping people come together to achieve something great. And I felt that continuing to grow, develop and learn and be challenged was important. So, uh, what the different jobs less the titles, but what the different roles and jobs did for me was never allowed, never caused me to stagnate, always allowed me to grow and learn and continue to get better. Always challenged me that there was a new set of responsibilities that I had to, you know, adapt to, including the business side when I became team president over there. Um, And then... um, You know, I I think that that progression really fulfilled me and satisfied me from that perspective, that I had to continue to learn something new, and I had to continue to earn respect from people and and have a different platform to lead.
1: I think most fans understand what a general manager does. Uh, When you were promoted from GM to president in Cleveland, Mm -hmm. how did your job change the most?
2: Well, it changed the most because for 17 years, I had only looked at the game through the lens of baseball operations, which is half... know, half the team business and had never even really thought at any level of depth or understood um, either ownership league issues or uh, the business side. And then when I became team president, you know, the business, you know, the whole other group of people and human beings that live and die for the team that, you know, while they're not on the player personnel side are still very important to the business, um, I became accountable and, you know, I felt like responsible for their fulfillment and their happiness and their development and their growth, um, as well as I was able to start to interact at the league level, and which I, I have really enjoyed that, you know, so, and that's, I, I mean, whether it's the competition committee or the strategic planning committee or attending ownership meetings, that's given me, I think at this point of my career, uh, a lens to be able to think about, hey, how can I help improve the game? How can I help make the game better? How can I help the game evolve? You know, how can I use some of my experience and my energy to just impact the game that I love and make sure it's in a better place, you know, when I'm done?
1: That said, is it tough? Obviously, you're still involved in baseball operations, you know, at a very high level. Is it tough to turn the day-to-day running of the baseball operations over? To someone else, even somebody who you've essentially groomed to take that job. Yeah, in
2: Cleveland, initially no, initially no, um, just because I don't just lo- I don't just believe in Chris. I love Chris Antonetti, and I I probably think that there's not a better executive, you know. I, I mean, I would think Theo Epstein's probably the best executive in the history of baseball, but, you know, I think that... What's he
1: accomplished? Yeah,
2: <laughs> but I think that, uh, you know, but I think that there's not a better GM than Chris Antonetti, or better, uh, I'm sorry, a better head of baseball operations than Chris Antonetti. And um, so knowing that, you know, like, I'm not better than him. You know, like, I I want, I want to be, I want the Indians to be successful, right? So I want Chris to be in that job. And... Easy to step aside, but easy to still feel connected because the roots weren't just being a GM there for seven years. The roots were before that assistant GM, before that farm director. So everywhere I went, there were people, you know, that I had been around or had touched me in some way. Um, What it's done moving over here to Toronto has allowed me to get back involved in baseball operations in a way where I feel like I can still make a difference and help and make an impact. Ross is still the GM day to day. I am not doing the, the player moves. I'm not doing the, you know, when there's an injury, who's coming up. I'm not, but, you know, Ross, I can help you know because he's a you know he's in his you know infancy or first couple of years of being a gm so i can spend time with him you know he wasn't an assistant gm where chris was um so i can spend time with ross you know as he walks through some of the challenges as he grows in that role and i would say five years of ross probably is not going to need me either you know but right now i can still help um and i can still be a resource for him and for the organization as we evolve over here and grow over here and really modernize some of our systems over here
1: i would assume that a lot of that gm and baseball operations job is about relationships as well and so having 25 years of relationships that he couldn't possibly have just based on his age yeah uh, that that probably plays a big role in, in you being able to do what you do here as well in terms of baseball ops
2: yeah i mean it's funny because the you know the relationships and the people change over time so i think well, you're going no, uh, work for you <laughs> so you're you know so to you know I think you're it's why it's just so important to stay relevant and keep bringing in new talented young guys and continuing to give them opportunity to impact the organization and you know I think again Ross if I wasn't here Ross would still be great and be fine but um, you know I just I'm one more set of experiences and one more set of perspectives that you know hopefully can help both him and you know some of the other people to continue to, to get better here
1: you were portrayed in the movie Moneyball. I'm sure you've asked your opinion on the movie and the actor who played you a hundred times, so I'll I'll phrase it. I'll ask you a different question. What's a better baseball movie? Moneyball or Major League? Uh,
2: um, You're in one
1: and you work for the other organization yeah, for half your life. Yeah.
2: I mean Major League was more entertaining than because it didn't cause it didn't try to be true to life. Right. Um you know, Moneyball was actually interesting because I think it obviously um, to the outside. It's, I always like say, it's probably like the emergency room for doctors, you know, ER and illegal dramas for lawyers are like, right. that's not even accurate. You know, um, you know, Moneyball tried to take three or four years and condense it in the 90 minutes. To do that, you have to take a lot of liberties with what actually sure. happened and kind of condense it. So um, I find myself distracted by the things that aren't accurate or the things that didn't actually happen or the fact I wasn't even a GM yet when, that, you know, <laughs> when I was being portrayed as a GM. So Minor details. Yeah, so I find I get distracted by that, whereas in Major League, and I get you just, you're not distracted. You're just laughing. Yeah, you're just laughing,
1: yeah. Uh, so after spending 24 years with the Indians, how difficult of a decision was it for you to leave for the Blue Jays?
2: It's difficult, you know. It's uh, it's difficult largely because of the people, you know, that uh, you care about and you're you're tied to. Um, I think it it took uh, two things. It took a compelling situation, which I feel like Toronto was, um, because it had so many unique, you know, attributes of things that were important to me. And everybody's different in what they're looking for. Um, and then two. Uh, I took the support of my family, you know, the, the willingness to consider an adventure, you know, and leaving a place they'd been their whole lives with me. Um, so, uh, those two things. But you know, it, I, you know, it wasn't like I was out of work, you know. So it was a, you know, it wasn't like there weren't things along the way that we also considered elsewhere. This just felt like the right opportunity at the right time. Both things.
1: Uh-huh. After you took the job with Toronto, the Indians had you catch the ceremonial first pitches from both of your kids. Uh, What did that mean to you to be out there with them?
2: Um, Man, I'm getting, like, emotional kind of thinking (laughs)
1: about that. Uh, It was,
2: yeah, family and baseball are kind of the only things in my life. You know, I'm not a hobby guy. I don't play golf. I don't play cards. I don't, you know, go on ridiculous vacations. Like, you know, I've got baseball and my job, my work, which is, and my family, and that's it. So those were... Kind of a point of, and I don't tend to be someone that spends a lot of time reflecting. I just want to keep moving forward. Um, so that was a day uh, and a moment of reflection, a little bit on holy cow! I can't believe it's been 24 years since I walked up the, you know, the staircase and Gate A and you know Municipal Stadium in Cleveland and and uh, to John Hart's office with the space heater and the plastic plant and the missing ceiling tiles and. You know, it's like Major League. <laughs> you know, it really wasn't that far from it in Municipal Stadium. You know, so to, to you know, just think of reflecting on that, you know, that 24 years, it's a long time. So,
3: this past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long term health today before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you, based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com.
1: Ross, you went from straight from a five-year minor league career to a front office job. Was there any part of your playing career that you think has helped you on the other side?
4: Sure. You know, I think, you know, it's a part of who I am. It's a part of my resume, part of my life's experiences, so... Um, You know, I think every aspect of any general manager's life is going to have some impact or influence on them. Having said that, um, it's just a piece of the equation. I think the most significant part of my development has been other executives and other people that I've been able to learn from in front offices.
1: Who have been your, your biggest influences in that regard?
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, Mark, obviously, who still remains that, but some others that are here and you know Ben Charrington and Tony LaCava have been great in this transition. Um, you know Chris Antonetti and Mike Chernoff, Mike Hazen were guys that I worked with uh, a good bit. There's managers that I've learned a great deal from, and John Farrell and uh, John Gibbons and and Terry Francona, Manny Acta, Eric Wedge. Um, but that list is long. Neil Huntington I failed to mention. So
1: it's like an Oscar speech. You got to make sure you don't forget people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> helping young latin players was very important to you when you joined the indians for an office which eventually led to your job as the latin latin american operations director uh, in 2004. why was that so important to you
4: uh it was just it was actually something that uh, i saw as an opportunity for myself to learn and grow and help i grew up in miami florida uh, you know played baseball in venezuela was always drawn to the young latin american players when i was a minor league player Um, in in trying to learn more about their culture, their upbringing, and in in turn trying to help them transition into ours. So it was just something I saw as an opportunity where I felt like I could um, you know not just help an organization but also help individuals and um, you know realizing their potential and um, you know transitioning well to uh, professional baseball. My first job after playing was you know it, it was I can't remember if my title was translator or not, but essentially I was translating for Danny Baez and his transition into professional baseball. But the way that Mark and Neil Huntington described the role to me was to help him transition into this culture of professional baseball in the United States, which is a very different uh, transition than the Dominican Republic to the United States or Venezuela to the United States and from where he was in his career.
1: Uh, Mark Shapiro hired you as a minor league coach immediately after you stopped playing. Uh, what do you think caught his eye that led to him giving you a job?
4: Uh, we, we had a great relationship when I was a player. I, I knew right away that uh, there was something special about the Cleveland Indians. When my first day there, I was asked you know, what I wanted to accomplish in my career, how I saw myself as a player, what I could get better at, and how they could help in that process. So... Um, that, that jumped out at me, which is what spurred my interest in what player development meant and how I could have an impact on people. And because of that, Mark and I developed a relationship. So I would imagine that um, you know, had something to do with him uh, seeing the potential for me to coach or potentially work in a front office.
1: With so many executives changing teams on a seemingly annual basis, I mean, you and Mark came from Cleveland, Benton came from the Red Sox, is there such a thing as secretive data anymore? I mean, when, when teams are you know, hiring guys from other teams who obviously are bringing those experiences with them?
4: You know, that's a good question. We do talk about that all the time. I think you would get a different answer from all, obviously you'd get different answers from different people. But, um, you know, my take on it is you absolutely have to be thinking about what's the next competitive advantage. Uh, but also, once you have it, it's probably in someone else's pocket, so it's it's that relentless approach to finding the next one, and it's not. I think all too often people are focused on just information when it may not be about information. It may be people, it may be culture, it may be environment. Um, so I think it's just um, you know there is no silver bullet uh, if that's a part of the question. But if you're not thinking about finding the next competitive advantage, uh, then you're missing out on opportunities.
1: When you were 14, you played on a youth team in Miami that included Alex Rodriguez and Mike Lowell, among some other guys who ended up in the mid leagues. What was it like playing with and watching a 14 year old Alex Rodriguez?
4: Yeah, awesome. Yeah, he was, you know, it's, it's interesting. One of my most vivid memories of A Rod was as soon as the game was over, he wanted to go back to our hotel rooms and play. You know, we we created a, uh, a game in the hotel rooms with the towel rack towels and tape balls and continued to play a, you know, a game of baseball on our knees where it was a double off the wall. If you hit it off the mirror, it was a home run. And, you know, any video game we could get our hands on that had something to do with baseball, A-Rod was the first to want to run back and do that. You know, Mikey was, was very similar that way. But... Uh, that's what stood out more than talent was his passion for baseball, um, but he was clearly he was younger than than Mikey and I was older than Mikey, so um, he he stood out from a talent perspective in that he was almost two years younger than the most of the team.
1: You were hired to be the general manager on a Thursday. The winter meetings started the following Monday. How would you describe that first week? <laughs>
4: um. You know, it was, it, you know, it's the world we live in. It's we, we work in baseball operations. I've now, you know, been doing it for 17 years. And, you know, uh, the biggest change is you go from an organization, of, you know, there's roughly 200 to 250 baseball ops employees in most organizations. So I knew all of those very well in the prior organization that I worked for, and I did not know them very well. Here, so that was the biggest uh, hurdle is, um, you know, is people and relationships and establishing them, and so that was the whirlwind feeling, that you know I wanted to expedite and maximize those as soon as possible, and now a year later, um, you know I've you know still got some work to do, I still got plenty to do, uh, because that that's 250 employees, almost 250 players too, so um, you know. To me, it's about relationships and individuals, and um, you know, I'm confident we're making good progress that way.
1: Have you found that there's also a perception that it's more difficult to attract free agents to Toronto, the country, etc. Have you found that to be the case at all?
4: You know, I think there is there is the unknown for some younger players, um, maybe even for some more veteran players that maybe haven't spent as much time here. I think now that. Uh, in the past few years the environment has changed a bit uh, that that certainly helps but I think we can break down those those barriers a bit with education and break down uh, that those unknowns and you know make sure that they're certainly not fears um, but but it really just comes down to most people uh, in this game didn't grow up in Canada so uh, breaking down that barrier is something that we're confident we'll be able to do
1: how long do you estimate it takes to get the system where you'd like it to be
4: i mean the easy answer i think that's three to five years right you know i think that's what most teams generally say that and i think a lot of that is based on um you know it it it, it just one draft or one trade and you know the likelihood of all of those players being good in one draft and one trade is is not great the likelihood of all of our players getting better um, in our minor league system are not great. Uh, but as we build out, uh, you know, an infrastructure that can do those things and build the team to do those things, I feel like we're there now. Where we're certainly not done. We're always looking to get better in, in regards to the team that's building the team, baseball operations. Um I feel like we have the appropriate resources now to do that, and if we look up in three to five years, and uh, you know, don't have ideally, we have a winning team and a more robust system uh, to contribute that we don't have to make trades. Um, but if we need to make trades, we certainly can, um, you know. But certainly, the odds of, of of one of those two things, we feel like, are, are very good.
1: Everybody knows. Vladimir Guerrero, future Hall of Famer. Not everybody knows his 17-year-old son, yeah. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. What kind of upside does he have as a player?
4: Yeah, he doesn't, you know, he, there aren't a lot of players that go into live batting practice for the first time and hit multiple home runs and, you know, doubles into the gap and they're seeing for the first time in a while 92-mile-an-hour sinkers and guys throwing breaking balls and change-ups. And live BP isn't a time that you traditionally see 17-year-olds Shine, uh, he does. So you know he it's it's there's a ton of subjectivity to a 17 year old Dominican player, but when the all of the subjective uh, commentary, evaluations, and looks um, are they're unanimous that he's as talented as any young player that our player development staff has seen in some time. So. Uh, those are good things to hear. A long way to go. He's got a long way to go. A lot of work to do. Um, you know, just from the standpoint that he wants to be great and what it means to be great. Uh, there's a lot of sacrifice ahead. There's a lot of hard work ahead. But he's as passionate and as driven as any young 17-year-old you're going to be around. So uh, we're 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 excited.
1: Mike, you played baseball at Princeton, but you you said you knew early on that college baseball was going to be pretty much where you maxed out. When did you decide that you wanted to pursue a career on this side of the baseball?
5: I definitely knew I was going to max out uh, at the college level. Thought maybe it would have been in high school and fortunately got a chance to play at Princeton. Um, I don't think I realized that a career in baseball was possible until about junior year. Uh, My dad had been in sports and sports radio And so I had had seen uh, I had some access to sort of the behind the scenes of sports, but I didn't really recognize the front office component of a major league team until I did an internship with the Mets between junior and senior years. It was in the marketing department, but I got to do some work for Jim Duquette in baseball ops. And that was the moment where I realized I didn't just like playing the game. I liked working in the game, too.
1: After the Mets, you interned with the Indians, I believe. Was that after you graduated college? Yeah, right
5: after graduation.
1: Did you get a sense with the Indians that that was a team that you were going to hopefully catch on with full-time?
5: I had a hope that that would be the case for sure. Um, I had applied to a few teams. I I don't think I realized just how competitive it is to get into a front office. I kind of lucked out Um, right after college, got the opportunity with the Indians, and immediately... Realized how special of a place it is. Um, Mark Shapiro and ownership and Chris had built this incredible culture here. And so as soon as you get into that and you get, even as an intern, had just opportunities sort of thrown at me, um, I realized just sort of how much work I had to do to, to be in a place where I could contribute, but also how special it was to be here.
1: I think you're the 22nd GM I've spoken to so far this spring. And I feel like I've asked this question to probably 18 or 19 of them. What did you learn most on March Pyro?
5: The thing I learned most is how important the people are. So, you know, I came, I started in 2003. Moneyball had just been written. I had an economics and math background, playing background too, but I was bringing a lot of the sort of sabermetric revolution as it was happening, bringing a lot of those tools to the table and trying to integrate it into what we were doing. I think the most important thing that I learned from Mark was whatever it is that you're focused on, whether it's the heavy scouting side, the analytics side, whatever it is, the people always come first. And the way that you build a culture, the way that you lead people, support people, um, and ultimately treat people, that's what's going to lead to your success. It's not about any one of those tools. So Mark did an exceptional job in building that culture here. and I feel like that is the legacy that we try to leave or we've tried to keep in place since he left.
1: So many people in decision-making roles around this game worked for Mark in Cleveland. Yeah. You worked with a lot of those people. Does that make it easier for you to deal with other clubs when you have those pre-existing relationships with other executives?
5: No doubt about it, yeah. I mean, it's it's fun to pick up the phone and call another team because uh, often there's somebody who I've worked with at that team. I think it... It can, from the outside, maybe look like it would be harder if you know each other so well, but it, we don't. negotiating is an adversarial. When we negotiate for trades or contracts or anything like that, um, the better relationship you have with the person on the other side of the table, the easier it is to figure out where you might have crossover. So the deal ended up not working out in the end, but doing like the deal for Luke Roy at the deadline, working with David Stearns, it was an easy conversation to figure out how can we overlap on interest because he and I are so close.
1: Right. For a city that hadn't won in a long time, Cavaliers won the NBA title last year. You guys get to the World Series. How have you seen the sports scene in Cleveland change over the past 12, 18 months?
5: It was incredible to be a part of that. Um, when the Cavs won... We all, like all our Baseball Ops guys, Tito was up there in uniform We're on, in our upper deck because it went right around our stadium. Um, which was a pretty funny scene watching Tito in uniform <laughs> watching the parade, but we watched the parade and there were, there were over a million people watching it. And it was hard not to um, just feel this tremendous pride in Cleveland. Cleveland's been through a lot as a city in the 50, 14 years that I've been here um, I've seen the economic hardship and seen what the city's gone through. Love the city, but and you feel that you know people have a loyalty to it. But I don't know that that pride has been there since I started in 03 I think that really came out when the Cavs won, and it felt like that momentum just continued to pick up throughout our postseason run. So we had when we were in Chicago. One of the coolest things I saw was when when we played. On the road in Chicago, 20,000 people were in the plaza outside of our stadium watching her game. To me, that was the city really embracing the team and building on, them, on that momentum.
1: You turned out a chance to interview for the Padres GM job in 2014. Was that a difficult decision, given that there's only 30 of these jobs out there?
5: Uh, the, any of the jobs that I have over time, um, external jobs where people have come to me, it's it's been an easy decision, actually. Um... And that's just because of the people that I work with here and the culture that we have. So even as an intern, I lucked out and reported directly to Chris Antonetti, who was the assistant GM at the time. Um, so he and I have worked really closely for 14 years. It's been he's like a big brother to me, um, and I've never I've always wanted to be here. This I don't you know title and responsibility and whatever. I felt like I've always been promoted ahead of where i you know felt like I was ready for. Right. So when you get opportunities like that, and you work with the people that we have in the building here, there's no reason to ever want to leave.
1: You're the GM. Chris is the president of Baseball Operations. It seems like more teams are moving towards those types of structures where there's multiple executives in the decision-making roles, Rays, the Cubs, Dodgers, Twins all come to mind. Why do you think this shift is taking place? There's a lot to handle
5: in a baseball operations infrastructure and then it's grown a lot I mean even in just the 14 years that I've been in the game the amount of staff the amount of information we get um, the amount of things that we're dealing with have grown tremendously so I think a lot of it is really just handling the management of you've got the major league roster that's the the external facing part that alone is a full-time job and then on top of that player development system scouting system um, all of the front office and analytics staff that we have it's it's hard to handle all that as one person so whether a team does it as a gm and assistant gm or a president and a gm it, it takes more than one person to to be able to focus on all those things throughout the year
1: as you mentioned your father mark worked in sports radio i interned for him incidentally uh he's run wfan for about 25 years growing up around that sports radio culture do you find yourself listening to it now um, now that I'm an
5: executive, I don't listen to it, and I know I know well enough not to listen to it. Um, no, I shouldn't say that. I think the 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 thing that I learned that has really helped me is that the fans that call in, whether positive or negative, are the most passionate fans, right? So even when they are just killing our team, it's because they care so much, and so I think having seen that firsthand at WFAN it was a lot easier when look we've we've been through some tough times with the Indians in my time here you realize that the fans that are getting all over you are not the enemy they're actually the people who care most about the team and the ones that you feel most responsible towards so it's helpful to view it through that lens because it can it can sometimes feel like you're being attacked when you hear some of those comments so you know you try to you try not to have the emotional roller coaster and the ups and downs that fans, of course, have and should have, um, but also you try to view it through the light of these are the most passionate people, and they only say it because they care so much.
1: I guess it's different than Twitter. Anybody can go on Twitter and it takes five seconds to send out a tweet. If you're willing to wait on hold for forty-five minutes to talk to Mike Francesa, that's <laughs> saying something, <laughs> that's right. right? That's exactly right. Yeah. How does Cleveland Sports Radio compare to WFAN?
5: Well, it's interesting. So Cleveland Sports Radio, there was a. Um, A station that my dad uh sort of helped out with that got to get it off the ground in the time that I've been with the Indians so it's fun he got to come and visit a lot um and it's a lot it's it's very similar I mean it's it's a passionate fan base there's a lot of talk about the Browns obviously a very um football oriented city um but it's you know it's it's fun to now have a full-time sports station in Cleveland and to be able to flip on the dial and listen to sports talk
1: did your dad's job give you a better understanding of how to deal with the media once that became part of your job?
5: Yeah, I think it did. I mean, I be, when you get to know radio personalities or media members as people, as opposed to somebody just sort of asking you tough questions, I think you gain an appreciation for why they're asking you tough questions and what your responsibility as a spokesperson for the team is. So some of that was through watching you know what other or listening to my dad's station hearing other executives go on some of it has just been here watching tito who's exceptional at that and understands that look you as reporters have a job to do and it's our job to help inform you and the fan base why we're making decisions nobody's coming after us or anything like that so i think you it just allows you to view things through a little bit of a different lens and not feel sort of the attack mode that some people maybe can feel from from media
1: you use the words collaborative collaborative culture mm-hmm. to describe the Indians organization. Where did that show up the most?
5: Um, I can give you one great example. So as we prepared for the postseason, as we prepared for the World Series last year against the Cubs, we had the um, our advanced scouts came in. The guys who had been sitting on the Cubs came in to talk with our Major League staff. So all of our Major League coaches in a room, our advanced scouts were going to come in and meet with them. Tito... Himself asked for the front office to come in there, asked for our analytics staff to come in there, asked for um, the other advanced scouts who had been watching the Dodgers play to come in in case they had any perspective, because they had been at those games also, right. and asked for our intern who helps to print out the reports and who's just been doing that all year to come in. As we go through the how, our what our game plan is going to be, Tito, every step of the way, asked, "Does anyone have anything to add?" legitimately hoping for, I mean, our intern made comments in that meeting. So that's, that's one small example of what a collaborative culture is to us. It's anybody who has a good idea, we want to listen to it. Anyone who has any idea, we want to listen to it and see if it's a good idea. Because sometimes it's that intern who's been grinding away all year, who sees something small that maybe can help us. And that person can get shut out in a lot of cultures. For us, I think we realize that there's huge value in bringing people together and recognizing that the collective mind is better than the individual mind. If we can put a lot of good people in one room together with a diverse range of um, perspectives, we can end up in a better spot than just having one person try to figure it out.
1: Every team in baseball has an analytics department at this point. I believe at one point you were the analytics department. Yes, that's a scary thought for the Indians. (laughs) Uh, Do you think teams are now looking, now that that's league-wide, do you think teams are now looking for the next big thing, the next wave to try to give them a competitive advantage over everybody else?
5: I wouldn't say now. We have always been. I mean, that the, the analytics movement got written about, so it got exposed that that's what we were on. It is a constant battle to be thinking about what's the next thing. Where do we go? And you don't want to be shifting philosophy. It's how do we add this? How do we add this component to the core of who we are? So, you know, we have a culture and we have um, departments, and we have groups of people that come together to figure out problems for us. How do we add the next thing to look at it in a little bit of a different way, or have a new tool to look at something, or take in a new perspective? So it's always been that. I think the analytics movement just got written about a lot.
1: Francisco Lindor is part of this new wave of young shortstops in the game. Carlos Correa, Corey Seager, Xander Bogart, it's Manny Machado. Is this the best crop of shortstops do you think that the game has seen since... Cheater Alex Rodriguez, and Omar garcia Garciaparra first hit the league.
5: So when I was like six years old, I had a poster in my room. I was a shortstop myself, yep. not nearly as good as any of these guys, but I had a poster of to. I had a poster of Jeter. It was like Jeter, Nomar, Ray Ordonez, yep. um, Alex Gonzalez. It was that group of guys, and it, you yeah, know the Sports and, Illustrated cover. Remember yes, that must right. have been one
1: of That might have been it.
5: That's right. So I had that poster in my room, and I was always trying to like mimic these guys and. Looked up to Omar Vizquel. he was such a good fielder. Um, in a lot of ways, it's probably very similar now with this young group of guys that has just tremendous potential and maybe reshapes the way the game is played in some ways. There's been a big focus on quantifying defense. Well, watching these guys is pretty fun too.
1: We hope you enjoyed our latest throwback episode of Executive Access. In the coming weeks, we'll hear from Brian Cashman of the Yankees, Jed Hoyer of the Cubs, Mike Hazen of the Diamondbacks, and many more top executives. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand. Stay safe, everybody.